morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to We're Gonna Need a Bigger Show. I am Mike D. Thank you all so much for joining us on this very early episode. Uh, today we have Ted Gagan, uh, who is the writer-director of We Are Still Here. Ted, thank you so much for joining us this morning. No problem. My pleasure. Um, so I know you're super busy. Um, you've got a lot going on right now. The film is actually out today on DVD and Blu-ray. Correct. Um, so I guess we'll just jump right into it. Um, I was wondering, you know, I'm number, I mean, first and foremost, we absolutely love the film. Uh, we got a chance to see it recently and it was, I mean, it's a wild fucking flick, man. I mean, we, we absolutely adored it. Um, so I was wondering, you know, growing up, uh, were you a horror fan? I mean, and, and when did you start to lean towards, ah, uh, maybe I want to, you know, get into the business? Yeah, well, um, you know, I, I grew up kind of in the middle of nowhere in rural Montana. And, um, you know, the the video store was my babysitter growing up. And I didn't really have much of a uh, an interest in horror films until I was like an early teenager. Like I didn't have that prepubescent sort of desire to watch horror movies on the rare occasion I'd see something it would just scare the shit out of me and I, <laughs> I wasn't interested but I, I'd always really been drawn to genre films I always loved sci-fi and I, I really loved fantasy I, I loved and still adore animation to this day so I, I think it was only a matter of time before I, I got over my cowardice and started <laughs> enjoying horror movies so by the time I was like 13 14 somewhere in that area I really started just taking a shine to them, and um, you know, I I think I went through the the typical sort of obsessive watching literally everything that was out there. You know, it was pre-internet days, so you know, it sure. was really just hanging out at the video store, like you know, watching every single one, and then going from video store to video store in town, trying to you know make sure that I'd seen every single one. Um, you know, and it, uh, you know, I, I've always been a creative. I've always been a writer and things like that from my very early days. And even in high school, I remember writing screenplays like before I had a computer, like just writing them on loose leaf paper, thinking like, oh, I'll make this into a movie one day. And um, when I got into college, um, I started writing a book on like horror filmmakers you've never heard of. Um, it, it ended up not going anywhere, but I mean, it, at least it didn't end up going anywhere in terms of getting published. It ended up going plenty of places in terms of it kind of started my career Sure. in that uh, I, I reached out to a, uh, an underground German filmmaker named Andreas Schnoss, best known for making a series of ultra-violent shot on video movies in the mid-80s called Violent Shit. Um, <laughs> And I reached out to him via a GeoCities page. I think this was in 1999. And um, he got back to me and, you know, I ended up writing a little bio for him uh, in this book. And he was so moved that anyone ever wanted to tell his simple life story. Um, And I think he was so happy with the way it turned out. You know, this like three pages of biography I'd written that he, uh, he asked me if I'd consider writing a screenplay for him. He was about to do his first English language film on like a modest budget. Um, and I, I leapt at the chance. And that was, uh, I, I wrote that film in uh, 2000. Uh, it was shot in 2001 called Demonium. Uh, it was never released stateside, uh, which is probably a good thing. Uh, <laughs> but, it, you know, it, it's a, you know, that was kind of the, uh, the foot in the door. You know, it was 2001. I had an IMDb page when the IMDb was just starting and I was somehow able to parlay that into, uh, you know, additional gigs. Whereas, you know, now thank, thanks to, and 
you know, angrily in spite of both at the same time, the digital revolution, anybody can make a movie. Anybody can be on the IMDb. It's, it's not quite that big of a deal anymore. I mean, good, good for everybody. I mean, it's awesome. Sure. But at the same time, you know, circa 15 years ago, you know, that IMDb page actually got me a fair amount of uh, work and I kind of just parlayed that into uh, lots of writing gigs. I started producing in 2007 and then, uh, yeah, you know, I just about a, two years ago, you know, I, I'd written the script for We Were Still Here and I just, I'd, I'd loved it so much that I, I kind of felt like this is the one that if I'm ever going to take a shot at directing, might as well do it here. So. so you, so would you say you didn't really have you know uh, many ambitions before that to to get into directing? I didn't. No, I uh, I was actually quite happy uh, writing and and the handful of times I'd produced films, I really enjoyed that. I, I you know I like being on set and you know having a position of power, but sure. not really having the terrifying position of power of steering the whole ship. And um, you know, it was it wasn't until we were still here that I I, I thought to myself like you know what like. You only live once. You, I, I got to do this, and if it's not for me, it's not for me. But um, you know, I I'm very grateful that the film seems to have been well received. So absolutely. Um, so one of the things you know in talking about you directing the film, uh, you've also worked as a film publicist, and I wonder has that helped? Did that help you? You know, prepare as a director for a film at all? I mean, to see you know what films are doing right and what films are doing wrong. Absolutely. Um, n- not only did it help in positioning the film once it was complete, but being a publicist is actually what I, I think gave me the nerve to try directing. Um, you know, I, like I said, I'd been writing and producing for, you know, all, over a dozen years and I just never had that desire or maybe I just never had that courage to actually give it a shot. Um, and when I started as a publicist about six years ago, um, you know, I just started working really closely with directors. You know, it's like I, I spent days with them, you know, we, we scheduled things, we, we set up shop, we did all this stuff. And, it really helped me understand the mindset of a director and, and what a director has to go through. Uh, you know, and most of the films I worked on were indie genre films. So, it, you know, it kind of helped me again, get inside their heads a bit more. And I'm friends with a bunch of directors. You know, I've, like I said, I, you know, I've been hanging out on film sets for, you know, 15 years, right. but it, it was really working that closely with them as a publicist that kind of helped me go like, okay, this is, what a director does. This is this is what a director needs to be capable of doing. And you know, after a few years of PR, I, I just realized I was like, yeah, you know what? I I think I got this. I, I think I I think I can handle this. You know, sure. and so it it definitely did. And then of course, once the film was done, you know, I, I mean, one of the things that I'm I think well known for as a publicist is you know I'm when it comes to strategy for independent horror like genre films and it was really nice to be able to help in the placement of the film you know um really just kind of like helping get the word out like explaining to people the concept and where it came from and of course you know any film has to live and die by its own merits but it certainly doesn't hurt to place it in the collective consciousness properly right away right. and hopefully plant those seeds. You know, so I, I, I love the fact that when we came out the gate with this film, 
we immediately let everyone know that, you know, it's very, you know, like Euro horror inspired. It's definitely got, you know, flourishes of Fulci and Lovecraft and, you know, it, you know, like all these things that by just letting people know right away, that information made it into those first few reviews that came out and it made it into those first few interviews that we did. And, you know, by planting that seed, it really helps all the other critics and all the other fans who then follow up and check out the film because sure. you don't have to explain it to everybody. You've already, you've already started that off. And yeah, I, I put a lot of that on my day job of PR. So, <laughs> well, and, you know, we, uh, Cameron, my co-host, who couldn't be here this morning and I, we're both filmmakers ourselves. So, I mean, that's a very, you know, just to hear that is very interesting, you know, to, to, uh, be able to talk about your film ahead of time. But the, the great thing about the film was that I never felt like anything was spoiled for me. You know, you put out, and you know, you put out enough information, um, that it, you know, definitely whets your appetite. Uh, and I mean that first trailer, you know, there's, there's a lot of zany shit in it, but it doesn't, and, and you know, there, I mean, there's, there's some death gags in it, but it doesn't, I never felt like, well, I, well, I, watch the film that oh this is happening or you know oh this is coming up right so, I mean, you know there's definitely uh, uh that that idea of putting out you know that it's euro inspired and and uh, uh lovecraft inspired i mean definitely helped you know to to deepen the mystery of the film which is really something that uh is lacking i think now in in film in general i mean just you know they want to they want to uh show you everything in the first trailer <laughs> yeah i mean we we tried our best to properly convey the tone of the film um i think that was really what we wanted to accomplish with with our trailers i mean we we didn't necessarily want to tell the whole story but we wanted it to tonally feel like the movie that the audience was about to experience um you know it you know, we, uh, you know, I admit that, you know, the trailer does have, you know, a few of those Blumhouse boahs in it, you know, um, (laughs) but you know, it's, it's kind of, you walk that line between trying to land something that, you know, engages the modern genre audience, but also, you know, it doesn't hide the fact that it is kind of this melodramatic, weird seventies sort of movie. Right. Um, and again, you know, it's, uh, I think that comes back to a lot of like the PR stuff. You really have to toe the line, you know, like I, I think one of the most important things to do in this industry is to never forget that it's a business, you know, like, I mean, I, I love the fact that I was able to have free reign and create something that was very outside the box and weird and that it was deeply appreciated by people. But I can't help but feel like, you know, the whole time we were shooting that movie, it's like this has to be accessible to, to not to date myself by saying this, but like kids these days, you know, like (laughs) you you don't want to make something that's only going to resonate with people who liked Fulci movies in 1979. You know, like you've got, you've got financiers to answer to, you know, you've got producers to answer to you. You need to make something that is also going to be, you know, just a fun modern horror movie. So, you know, it's, I, I think we're starting to see a lot of these young filmmakers realizing that after years of possibly making these films that are so outside the box that, 
they just didn't have an audience. And now they're starting to realize like, oh, you know, like you can make something artistic. You don't have to compromise your vision, but you can still make it in a way that, you know, it, it's going to make a few bucks, sure. which is yeah. it's key. I mean, if you want to make a second movie, you've got to make sure the first one does it okay. Sure. Well, in talking about, you know, the you said, you know, you had financiers to answer to and producers to answer to. I mean, producer superstar Travis Stevens, you know, I mean, it's kind of seems like uh, he, you know, uh, knew what he was getting into with, with this project, as, as he kind of has with the other things that Snowfort has done. Um, I wonder you know, what it's been like working with him and just, you know, it, it seems like he's been super supportive of the film throughout the entire process. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, Travis is a very good friend of mine, and we'd been wanting to work on something for years. Um, I ended up uh, doing publicity on Cheap Thrills, um, okay. which isn't necessarily how we met, but it is, uh, you know, we'd we'd kind of known each other prior to that, but that was the first thing we worked on in any real professional capacity together, sure. I suppose. Um, and we just, you know, wanted to do something and, you know, with, with what Travis does at Snowfort, you know, I, I think we all kind of groan and shake our head when we hear this term, you know, elevated genre film or elevated horror, because it implies that horror needs to be elevated. It needs to be brought up because it's garbage. You know, it's like... <laughs> Really more than that, I mean, what Travis does at Snowfort is he makes smart genre films. You know, I sure. mean, he makes he makes clever genre films. And I'll be the first to say that, you know, you don't need to bring horror up, but it is really fun when it's smart, you know. Right. And, right. Well, and, and I think the thing, you know, that, that you said earlier and that I think, you know, is kind of a problem is that it is the, you know, the digital revolution. And so many people are, you know, it's accessible for anybody to make a film right now. Sure. Uh, and, and the market is just, you know, so oversaturated that we do need these, you know, kind of uh, smart genre films and these, you know. Yeah, when, you've got, more when you've got 45 things. movies coming out on VOD every Tuesday, sure, like, yeah. you know, you've, you've got to be able to separate, you know, the, the, the films. The chaff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. Um, you know, there's, there's a phrase that I often use where I say, you know, the, the best thing about the di digital revolution is that everyone can make a movie. The worst thing about the digital revolution is that everyone can make a movie. <laughs> make a movie. Yeah. <laughs> and and, that's definitely something, you know, we talk about a lot. I mean, it just, it's, it's, it's great, but it, it is also very frustrating. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, and it's one of those things where, you know, we get something like we get a masterpiece like Tangerine that's shot on an iPhone, sure. you know, and then we get for, for every Tangerine, we get, you know, 50 other movies that are shot on iPhones that and, you know, it I'm not going to say they clutter up the marketplace or I'm not going to say they're all garbage because, you know, every single one of those films, somebody put a lot of hard work and a Absolutely. lot of effort into even the even the backyard sort of horror films, you know, like. They all they all deserve to exist, of course. Sure. You know, it's someone's passion was behind that film, but it's it's very hard, like like you said, you know, to kind of separate these films that are, you know, dare I say, like of a of a different caliber. Um, you know, like they they actually have a bit of I don't want to say expertise, but uh, you know, je ne sais quoi. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, I, I think what Travis really does at Snowfort is, you know, he's he's made a career out of finding directors who, 
you know, have never made a film before or have only made one or two films previously and, you know, help them kind of come out the gate just swinging, you know, I mean, just, just create a project that separates itself from the crowd and does something wildly different. And, um, you know, I've, I've been a fan of everything that he's worked on and while doing, while doing, we are still here. I, I very quickly realized why all of his projects are of such high caliber. You know, Travis is a extremely hands-on producer. You know, he's not the type of producer who just says, "Okay, well, you know, we got this thing going. I'm going to go hang out by craft services." You know, Travis sits next to his directors all day, every day, making right. sure that everything lands, making sure everything is clear. You know, and if anyone on the team has any questions, Travis is ready to answer them. You know, he's just these the you know these films are his babies, and he takes very very good care of them. So, you know, it, for me, it was an incredible experience to be able to have somebody with with that much knowledge. You know, having my back on the set, um, you know, just from day one, and absolutely n- not only that, but I mean to have his respect means a lot, you know, sure. I, he's my friend, of course, but you know, the, the fact that, you know, I was the director, he was the producer and you know, we, we had this amazing relationship on the set and you know, it, it turned into something awesome. Sure. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just think that, uh, that explains so much about all of Travis's other films. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, just as, as somebody working at the level that we are, you know, it's it's like seeing, um, meaning Cameron and myself, like it's seeing the stuff that, that he does and, and the passion, you know, that he puts behind everything is definitely kind of awe-inspiring and, you know, it's like that's that's the kind of person you want to work with. You know? Absolutely. Um, so to kind of talk about, you know, other perfect storms with the film, I mean, you had Barbara Crampton in the film who we're going to actually talk to later on today. Um, Tell her I said hi. <laughs> I definitely will. Um, but she's, you know, she's kind of experiencing this horror renaissance for herself. Uh, what was it like to be a part of that and just to have her back on a, on a horror set again? Yeah, well, um, you know, similar to how I met Travis, or not how much I met Travis, but, you know, our, our past together being a publicist on Cheap Thrills, um, I met Barbara because I was one of the publicists on Your Next. Oh, okay. And, um, you know, I had met her, I believe, at Fantastic Fest, and we immediately hit it off. We just, like, we became best friends within minutes. And I always kind of, you know, I won't say jokingly, but maybe rather tongue in cheek said, you know, if I ever end up directing a movie, you're going to, you're going to star in it, Barbara, you're going to star in it. And she said, oh, okay, Ted, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> you know, and she of course was familiar with all the things that I'd, I'd written and produced in the past. And I started writing, we are still here. This is, you know, long after I'd met her and I wrote the role of Anne with Barbara in mind. Um, it, I, I don't necessarily think that I ever thought Barbara would play that character, but as you probably know as a fellow filmmaker, when you write a script, you just imagine someone in every role, you know, and it it might be a friend, it might be Al Pacino, but it just kind of helps you, (laughs) you know, it it helps you visualize as you write. And so the whole time I was writing, Anne was Barbara. Um, And so when I was done with the script, you know, I, I handed it over to Barbara and I said, I said, hey, would you read this? Let me know what you think. And she read it and she said, yeah, it's really good. 
And it occurred to me like, oh, I, I didn't tell her like that, <laughs> you know, anything. I basically right. just handed it to her and said, like, what do you think? Um, and so that, then I said, oh, because, you know, like I, I wrote this with you in mind, you know, for, for this for this role. And she goes, oh, that's really cool. And she goes, is, is the movie going to get made? And I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, and, and I want you to play, you know, Anne. And she goes, oh, that, that's really cool. And then, you know, a, a few more days go by and she calls me up. And she goes, oh, hey, I forgot to ask, who's going to direct this? And I was like, oh, my God, me. And it was like <laughs> I, I'd somehow managed to, like, not tell her anything every time we spoke. Um, <laughs> so, um, no, she's – and, uh, you know – it was amazing to have her there because by that point we had become extremely close friends and, you know, much like having Travis on set, you know, having Barbara there really not only did it mean a lot to me, but it really helped make my first time directing a feature all the more doable. Um, sure. You know, it, I, I can't even describe how incredible it was not only having Barbara there, but, you know, Larry Fessenden, who's also a very close friend of mine, um, who I wrote the role of Jacob for as well. Those were the two people that I wrote roles for because they were friends. Um, she, um, or, uh, you know, just, just to have them on set, you know, that they had my back was meant so much, you know? Absolutely. Well, uh, and I would imagine that that is even more important when, you know, you had such a, a leaning towards practical effects, and just how time-consuming and uh, potentially frustrating, you know, the setup and and reset up for, for practical effects. Oh, sure. I yeah, wonder, to have I very mean, patient actors. <laughs> sure, absolutely. And I wonder, you know, if you could talk – I know we don't have a whole lot of time left. Oh, sure. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about just, you know, what that was like. And, I mean, obviously, you know, we're big fans of practical effects and mm – -hmm. and, you know, CGI works best when it's working in tandem with a practical effect. Yeah. Um, was that kind of your approach going into it? It absolutely was. Uh, initially, I, I had the caveat of there wouldn't be any digital. I was like, we're not even going to use digital for cleanup. It's going to be 100% practical. And then, <laughs> you know, as we move further into it, I, I did start to see just how much merit could come from digital cleanup and little digital additions. Um, but you know, I, it's funny. I, every time we bring somebody up, I say, and they're my friend. But uh, Marcus <laughs> Cook, uh, who runs um, Autopsy Effects, who did our special effects, Marcus has been a buddy of mine since 2003. We worked on a movie back then called Nikos the Impaler. Um, so <laughs> how far we've come. Um, and Marcus has been a buddy of mine ever since. And we've worked on tons of movies together. Just a few years ago, we did Sweatshop together. Um, you know, like we just – we've – We've always kind of been, you know, brothers in arms, and so when this project came about, I, I just said, you know, Marcus has to has to be on board. He's sure. he's, a, he's part of the family, and um, you know, we pretty much every single practical effect in the film was done on the first take, which is incredible and, it, and a real testament to Marcus's prowess as, a, as an effects artist that Absolutely. he was able to just everything we were able to line up and. My cinematographer, another friend, Kareem Hussein, um, you know, he knew exactly how to set up the shots. He knew exactly how to capture Marcus's effects. Sure. So, well, I would imagine, especially with working on something like Hobo with a Shotgun and, you know, his sure. own work, I mean, that he, he's he's become an old hand at, you know, working with practical Oh, effects. totally. You know, and, and yeah, and 
Kareem as a director on like subconscious cruelty and things like that, mm -hmm. which were also very heavy practical effects laden films. Sure. You know, yeah, he definitely has an eye for how to capture these things properly. Um, so that's that's also fantastic. Um, right. But um, yeah, no. In terms of uh, the practical effects, you know, Marcus and his team—it was a very small team. Uh, Marcus and three others um, created everything, and we we threw some curveballs at him. I mean, there were days where we came in and we just said, "Dude, we need, you know, like we need a chest to explode today." We know it's not <laughs> the script, but we came up with a really fun gag, and you've got like forty-five minutes. And Marcus oh, would like you know, run around like a madman. And 45 minutes later, we'd be shooting it, and we're all screaming and yelling in, in, in like, joy because it looks so phenomenal, you know? Just so many of the splattery gags that show up in, in, the, uh, in the final act uh, were, like, we were like, oh, my God, okay, so if, if he's standing here and she's standing there, then this could happen. Right. And then we'd look over at Marcus, and we'd go, hey, can we make that happen? And he'd be like, uh, yeah, and would, like, run off and, you know... <laughs> <laughs> come back 45 minutes later he's like we did it we got it it's all set it's like awesome. oh my god that's you know unbelievable in in just talking about one of the other challenges of the film i mean was the time of year that you shot uh also a challenge oh god it was yeah it was agonizing um <laughs> yeah it was it was just nightmarish um we uh we shot in extreme cold. Uh, the film was shot in late January, early February of 2014. Uh, shot it in upstate New York, outside of Rochester, known for lots of snow. Um, we chose a location that we felt would be most likely to keep its snow for the entire shoot. We didn't. Sure. We of course constantly had that fear of like we were going to wake up and it was 60 degrees and all the snow would be gone. <laughs> right. Um. But we were we were very lucky. Um, it was it, it only rose above freezing twice over the entire shoot on the first day and the last day. Um, so I guess that's good. Like, yeah, yeah, it's like it's like well, it was good in terms of yeah, we we certainly didn't lose the snow. Right. Um, but even some of like the simpler shots, like the scene where Jacob and May first arrive and they pull up to the house and you know they hug out front before deciding they're going to go out to eat. Like, it doesn't look that cold. Of course, it's snowy, but, I mean, it was, like, 17 degrees. Oh, you know, I mean, it was it was the sort of, like, unbelievably cold that just was, like, jaw-dropping. And the house itself, you know, was this very, very old farmhouse and extremely large. And the only thing it had to heat it were those two little wood-burning stoves that you actually see in the movie. Sure. So, like, the reason those are constantly on in the movie is because they needed to be. Like, there was no <laughs> other way to keep that house warm. So, even the uh, the the basement, you know, the, the hot basement, right? You no, know, was was the coldest place, of course, in the entire house. So, <laughs> we had to come up with every trick in the book to try to make it feel warm. You know, e even going so far as to you know, like we had space heaters down there. And, you know, we'd have the actors, you know, put ice cubes in their mouth before the take. So, you know, it would be less likely to see their breath when sure. they, look. you know, like any sort of little, little old school trick you could do just to not see the breath. What's uh, funny is that we, we, I actually have a friend who, who worked on the film and I didn't know what the film was at the time. And, you know, I'd ask her, I was like, well, you know, how is it today? Well, it's, it's cold. It's cold. <laughs> yep. It's uh pretty fierce, pretty fierce. So, so 
Well, I mean, we're, we're just about out of time, uh, but I wanted to just uh, ask, you know, now that the film, it, which, you know, is out today on Blu-ray and DVD, um, is out there and, you know, it, it's had a really great festival run. Um, what, what do you, you know, what do you want to do next? I mean, do you, have you now been bitten by the directing bug? Do you want to jump back in and, and, yeah. and do something else? Um, yeah, no, I definitely want to direct something else. And I, I think there's a good chance it could happen next year. Um, I am very eager to work with a lot of the same people that I worked with on this film. Uh, sure. I think, I think it was a really great family and I'd love to come up with a reason to have a reunion. Um, and on top of that, um, you know, I also want to do some more writing, um, sure. not necessarily for myself, but just uh, to get it out there. I'm most of the way through a new screenplay um, that's it was kind of like a gun for hire script, something that I'm not going to direct, but I, I'm just writing for someone else. And, uh, you know, I, I just I'm so happy to do that. Like, it, it's so nice to just be able to kick back and write something and not worry about how I'm going to shoot it. You know, someone Absolutely. else, someone else gets to worry about that. Um, so that's, uh, that's kind of what's up next. Uh, hopefully another film that I direct and, uh, hopefully several more films that I write, um, sure. you know, and then, you know, I'm just going to keep doing what I do. I, you know, I keep, keep working in PR, keep pick a thing. You know, I, I feel like <laughs> the, the indie film industry right now, you know, these days you got to wear a lot of hats, Absolutely. you know, and you know, it's I, I'm perfectly happy being a jack of all trades, master of none. So it's a good good place to be. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Ted, thank you so much for your time today. You know, we really appreciate it, and uh, it, it's been really great just getting a look inside the film. Uh, you know, and it, it's been one of our favorite films of the year, and we we talk about it a lot on the show. So, uh, you know, we really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks so much. I really appreciate that the uh, film resonated with you guys. Like I said, it's it's a weird one, and uh, you know, I'm very grateful that it found an audience. Absolutely. Well, for bigger show, this has been Mike D. Uh, thank you all so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Goodbye. We're gonna need a big show.